Hello and welcome to Big Earth Energy. I'm your host, Dwayne Fields, and our mission here is to discuss all things sustainable thinking and action. It's important, it's complicated, and we can all learn more about what's actually going on, and more importantly, why. And to give you some information as to who I am, I'm a presenter, an explorer, and I've been fortunate enough to have led many carbon neutral expeditions through some of the world's most inhospitable places. I also co-founded the We Too Foundation, a charity focused on encouraging young people from deprived areas to learn more about sustainable living and general climate literacy. We'll be speaking with experts from different fields of sustainable thinking and action to hear more about the work they're doing, why they're doing it, and what we could be doing to up our own environmental game. If you like what we're doing here, be sure to check out Twig, the people behind Big Earth Energy, who are doing some really cool stuff with their bank of things. So check out their app, which allows you to start your own climate action today. While making money, you'll be extending a life of items and ultimately actioning sustainable behaviors. You can find them at twigcard.com. The theme of this episode is plastic for the people and planet. And joining us to explore this idea is Ben Gibbons from Circular 11. Hello, Ben, and welcome to the podcast. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. This is one of those podcasts that I've really been looking forward to. Again, I say it all the time, but this one especially. Tell me a little bit about your company and what it does. So we take plastic that would otherwise go to incineration and we turn it into low carbon building materials. The problem right now is that most plastic in the UK goes to waste and almost half gets incinerated. It's a really, really bad end of life outcome for plastics because it's more carbon intensive than coal production. But at the moment, it's positioned as a kind of solution. So we want to make something really valuable and durable out of these waste streams. You just said plastic is more carbon intensive than coal production. Make that make sense to me. So the incineration of plastic is currently the main way in which plastic is treated. So a lot of the time plastic gets mixed together when it goes into the recycling system. And actually only about 30% of plastic gets recycled into any other product. Some of it gets landfilled, some of it gets exported into other countries poorer than ourselves and less able to deal with it. And about half of it goes to incineration. It's great to not have to confront the consequences of the plastic problem because it's gone up in flames. The problem is that plastic is a hydrocarbon, so it's made of the same thing that oil is made up of. So when you burn plastic, it's just like burning oil. It's a very, very dirty process. Should I feel bad? Because in my head, like many people, you put all your plastic in and your cardboard and your papers into one bin. You bring it outside on bin collection day, recycling day. Only 30% of that gets recycled. I know. It's something which there has to be more exposure about because not many people really understand exactly what happens to the plastic once it goes to the recycling bin. And when I say not many people, I mean the heads of recycling of a given borough or council. I mean, when you go to the heads of the recycling centers, it's really, really no one that understands exactly what kinds of plastics are being recycled. And you're doing the right thing by putting it in the recycling rather than the general waste. Because if you put it in the general waste, I guarantee you that it will all be going to waste. Whereas if you put it in recycling, at least then there's the chance that given a proper recycling sector, we can do something with it and we can make it into a resource. But at the moment, the recycling sector has a lot of work to do to become more effective at recycling plastic. What's the mission for Circular 11? 
most of the plastic goes to waste because it gets all mixed together when it goes into the recycling box and it goes into the truck and the council takes it away. You have really awesome sorting facilities that are meant to sort out all of the different types of plastic from the cardboard, from the glass and so on. But the problem with plastic is that it's made up of hundreds of different variations. Now that's not just the types of plastic that you might be familiar with. You might see something like HDPE or LDPE on the bottles that you throw away. A lot of the times we try and separate this kind of a plastic because it's not helpful for a manufacturer to have all of this plastic mixed together. So no one's going to buy it. That's why plants will sort out one plastic from another. But even the best separation equipment only tends to separate effectively about 50% of waste. So there's all of this plastic which is mixed together and which can't be separated. And if it's mixed together at the moment, it's going to the waste stream. It's either going to landfill or it's getting incinerated. But it's good plastic. And we're really interested in finding ways to combine the mixed plastic into a, a blend which is really suited for outdoor products, outdoor durable products. So the mission of our company is to make the recycling system much more effective by creating really large scale alternatives for mixed plastic. So instead of going to incineration, it goes on to become a feedstock for construction materials. Why did you start this particular business? What is it about the waste plastic that we see that made you think, oh, actually, I'm going to start a business in this? When I was growing up, plastic was not on the agenda at all. I was really passionate about the climate from as young as I can remember. It wasn't until I started working in the NGO sector that I got more involved in waste management. This is a super unglamorous area and never in a million years would I have aspired and dreamed to working in the recycling sector. But I was working on a waste management project in Nepal. And that's actually where I met my co-founder. And it was a really shocking thing to experience working on a waste management project in emerging markets that lack recycling systems, because the main way that people deal with their waste is by openly burning it. So we would go to bed each night with the smell of burning plastic. It's carcinogenic, but actually it's awful for the environment as well because of some particles in the burning of plastic called black carbon. And we realized that, okay, 40% of the world is estimated to deal with their plastic like this. So for us, it's a real problem, the fact that so much plastic is going to incineration. But for communities that don't even have collection systems, it's a lot, lot worse. Yet the few plastics that had value, so where there was a recycling market, people would collect it 100% of the time because it's worth something, because it's a resource. It's a really good resource that empowers people to you know, become waste pickers and it employs a lot of people in emerging markets. The problem is that there's no end market for most plastic because it goes to waste. So that got the cogs turning initially that, wow, if there was a way to do something really valuable with all of this mixed together plastic, it's not just a nice to have kind of way to reduce plastic waste. It's actually transforming something which is damaging communities and it's turning it into, into a resource that can benefit them. It took a long time before the company took its current shape as anyone that might have founded a startup would know. You don't come up with the idea straight away that you end up with. So 
initially there was this harebrained idea to create a bin that shreds plastic when you turn the handle and somehow makes it more easy to transport. And it began a process where we got in touch with a lot of recycling centers, a lot of waste specialists, a lot of material scientists. And we slowly realized where the problem was and what the most effective way would be that we have to deal with the problem. It's interesting because as you're speaking, I'm thinking back to a couple of years ago, I was in Kyrgyzstan, which is one of the most mountainous countries in the world. And we're high up in the mountains and talking three and a half, four thousand meters up. And the way they deal with any kind of waste is by burning it because you don't want to have to hike a load of rubbish back out. So they'd burn plastic there. And I remember sitting in this hub and watching this guy burn the bits of plastic one at a time and the bits of wrapping and paper. And I remember when you were outside, out the chimney, there's black soot coming out. And in the distance, you've got these pristine white mountains and a glacier. You can see the face of the glacier. And I thought, well, wow, we're talking about glacial retreat all the time. And this is exactly why in view of the glacier, we're burning these hydrocarbons. Exactly. The black soot that's coming off that plastic heats the planet 2,200 times more than CO2. So we all talk about CO2 as the main cause of global warming. And some people might know that things like methane are a bit more potent. So they're about 20 or 30 times more potent. When it comes to black carbon, we are talking stratospherically worse than CO2. The smoke is really, really awful for the environment because it just traps heat so effectively. So that's such a powerful story because you're juxtaposing like the most pristine environment with the worst way possible of dealing with waste management. And I think it's a lovely story to illustrate why we should be invested in waste management. It's not glamorous, but it's, it's a really significant thing about how our society works and it's often hidden behind closed doors. So just for the listener, I want them to understand what that 30% of their waste looks like. How much are we talking per household? So the average household will make about 250 or 300 kilograms of plastic waste per year. But that's not all going to incineration. Some of it is being recycled. So as you say, 30% or so is going to be turned back into milk bottles, back into plastic water bottles and things like that. But there are a lot of segments of your waste stream that at the moment probably aren't being recycled. Now, if I tell you what some of them are, you're not allowed to then start putting them in the general waste bin because that means we definitely won't recycle them. If you keep on putting them in the recycling bin, then at least we have a chance of working out how to make them a useful feedstock. But things like pots, tubs, and trays. So a lot of the things that you'll get in, you know, your yogurt and your containers, a lot of that will be going to waste. There's a lot of things which are made of soft plastics, which won't normally get recycled. The recycling rate is about eight or 9% for soft film. And that's the lining of say a sandwich box or something like that, isn't it? That would be right. But you chose a really difficult example oh, right, yeah. because that's actually you can it's count a, me to do that. Yeah, it's a multi-laminate film. So that means that it's glued together with the cardboard. That means that it's really difficult to recycle that. And what we try and do is identify the main types of plastic that are easy to recycle that should not be going to waste because we can find ready end uses for it. But things which are glued together or which are composed of a lot of different layers of plastic will remain problem plastics for a long time to come. And when you get to 
sandwich plastic wrappers, the thing that we really need is a better design, something which doesn't have glued together plastic and cardboard. If I said climate literacy, what does that mean to you? For me, the most challenging part of the question is how high are our standards? We can't all be climate specialists. But one thing I think would really benefit the society that we live in is if more of us understood what it means to take into account something which is called life cycle analysis. And it's not about becoming a specialist, but what it means is understanding the carbon impact and the planetary impact, the environmental impact of the products and the services that we consume. So everything will have a footprint, but it's not just about CO2, it's also about the toxicity of the chemicals that are used in its production. It's about the land usage. It's about the water usage. And when you start to take into account a life cycle analysis, a lot of decisions that we make become a little bit less intuitive. So for example, plastic bags, we're going to start getting controversial here, just as a, a warning. They're around four or five times less intensive from a carbon standpoint than a paper bag because paper takes a lot of energy and a lot of chemicals to make sure that it's effectively bleached, stripped and turned into a new fiber. So if you use a paper bag again and again and again, it's much better than plastic. But if you only use a paper bag three or four times because then it rips, we might not be best placed to phase out plastic entirely. What we really need is a way to recycle it. I want to pause on that just for a second. Yeah, yeah. A plastic bag is potentially less harmful than a paper bag. I'm sorry. Based on how much we use it. Yeah. That single-use argument though, isn't it? And I guess single-use anything is not good. Yeah, exactly right. But the problem with a lot of materials that we can use again and again, let's say cotton, you need to use it, a cotton bag, about 170, 180 times for it to be more environmentally friendly than a plastic bag, then that might be something that you can pull off. So if you make your tote bag your staple go-to and you use it day in and day out, that's only half a year. So actually, maybe we do want to do that. So I'm certainly not advocating plastic as the main material we should be using, but we start to become aware of what responsibilities we have if we shift material. So around 16 million tons of plastic was used in the US, just as an example. If we changed all of that plastic packaging into paper and cardboard packaging, it would need about 50 million tons or 60 million tons worth of material to substitute it because paper's heavier, plastic's very strong, you can make it in a very thin, lightweight way. And when you compare the impact of 50 or 60 million tons worth of paper and cardboard compared to 16 million tons of plastic, it's not better. So what that means is when we start to make decisions about what we buy, we need to have a sense of responsibility for the numbers and not allow ourselves to, something I'm really guilty of, buy the most expensive bag for life that there is and then lose it or use it for my bin liner. So I'll put it in the, in the bin after two uses. We all do. I, it's my job. I'm uh, smiling. I, I'm nodding because that's exactly what I do. I go into whatever supermarket I go to and I spend 60p, 70 pence on a bag now. And before you know it, it's been used to take the cat litter out or something. Yeah. I feel so bad now. No, don't. Should, should I not feel bad? 
you shouldn't feel bad because how are we all meant to be specialists? The responsibilities that we all have need to be balanced. It's on the people who are, who are specialists and that's people like me to be communicating this. And believe me, my housemates still have a tough time recycling and putting things in the right box. And I'm saying to them, this is my job, guys. If I can't persuade you, who can I persuade? Because you need to put the right things in the right boxes. It's hard. And the trouble with plastic is that there are so many different types that if you're holding something which is a bit flexible, do you put it in the bin? Do you put it in the recycling? It's on us, I suppose, as a recycling system to make it clearer and more accessible what it means to make good decisions about using this resource or using that resource. And my intention is certainly not to say to everyone, start using plastic more. Absolutely not. We can get into this more, but plastic is a real pain to recycle. And if we can eliminate it in certain areas, that might be a good thing. But for me, being literate about climate related issues is to be aware of the many different types of consequences that our consumption has. And just being curious and open to making different decisions if it turns out that one way of consuming is better than the other. What is absolutely unquestionable is that if we consume less or we use more secondhand, we use things like libraries of things, Twicard and everything else, which is promoting a circular economy, we're always going to have a lower impact than if we buy new and we dispose often. I'm glad you mentioned your housemates because there's people out there listening to this right now who are thinking, well, actually, what advice does he have for me? I want to improve my sustainable living. Where do I go? It's such a good question. And there's a spectrum from trying to tidy your own room before sorting out other people's houses. So first of all, being a little bit aware about what you can actually put in the recycling bin and whatnot. Sometimes we get a lot of things donated to us, like difficult plastics but they've got batteries in, they've got pieces of metal in, and we think, oh, this is really mucking up our equipment. If a bit of metal gets in our plastic recycling machines, it takes a lot of money to sort out. So being aware of what is appropriate for the recycling bin. Some councils can take soft plastics, and amazing if so, but some councils can't. So if your council is actually telling you, look, this is what we can take with our current infrastructure, just having a look on the website is a really good place to start. There's a couple of other things to do, which are really easy and might just turn a couple of heads if you live with housemates, but giving plastic a little rinse, if it's got some food stains on, means that it's quite likely that it can be reused. If it's just covered in mayonnaise, and we've got washing systems, but I can't produce building materials that are half plastic and half mayonnaise. You know, a little rinse goes quite a long way because effectively we need to treat it like a future resource. And that starts at the, at the point of disposal. So you're about to put this into a system with your help, which can recycle it into something new, but it can't do that if it's super dirty. And there are other small things which, which frustrate me no end and which people are really well placed if they're passionate to change in their local area. So I live in a block of flats and the council has not clearly labeled what is actually the recycling bin and what is the waste bin? It's crazy. Like, so you, everyone's putting stuff into all sorts of different bins. And it's on me to go to the council and say, we haven't even got a food waste bin here. So there's organic contaminants in all of our recycling because you've not provided a food waste bin. And the last kind of easy-ish thing to do, which is 
but it's always kind of harder to fit this into your daily routine. But things like, don't know if you know what Tetra Packs are, but things like, you know, the soy milk, oat milk, juice, they've got this special lining in. So if you put it in recycling, it's, it's a nightmare. It's got aluminium foil laminated onto the cardboard, but you can recycle them at specific points. And there's likely to be one within a kilometer of you because they're everywhere. Same thing with soft plastics increasingly. So if your council doesn't recycle soft plastics, you can take it to a local shop and normally recycle it. If you're passionate about it, that is a really tangible step you can take. And it's not insignificant because if you think about what a normal household puts into the waste bin, you're talking hundreds of kilograms each year that you could save from incineration by taking it to a specific point. So those are all ways in which every single one of us can play our part in making a better recycling system. There's always going to be people who are going to try and negate their responsibility when it comes to sustainably living. What do you say to those people? You know, we all live busy lives, but we're living at quite a unique time because say in 2000, just, it was barely on the consciousness of most people that our planet is in quite a lot of jeopardy. In 2050, we will be net zero. We have to be. We might have lost a lot along the way. We might have undergone a lot of damage, but we will have shifted to a net zero economy. And that 50 year period, for me, it's quite a privilege to be alive and to be working and to be active in this period because it is one of the greatest reorganizations of our economy and our society ever. And I want to be part of the action. I want to be on the side of people that were doing something about it so that when you know, my kids and my grandkids, who will be living in a different world, ask about what I was doing. It was everything I can within my capacity to make a more secular economy and to make a more sustainable economy. And that doesn't have to mean quitting your job and starting something new, but it means having a sense of responsibility for the moment that we live in. So to those people, I would say, yeah, it's hard, but you're going to want to be part of the movement because history is going to remember us. I think that's so cool to hear you say that. You said a minute ago, your kids and your grandkids are going to live in a different world. What does that world look like to you? There are two sides of this. There's the society that I want them to be living in, and I think they will. And then maybe starting off on the slightly more negative one, we're already seeing much hotter summers. We're seeing more flooding and they're going to inherit a world which is quite different to us. And they are like, there's no way in which we're going to avoid any damage on the environment. So the different world is going to be one in which more people are under drought stress, more people are at risk of kind of weather events. And we're going to adapt to that. You know, we're resilient. Ecosystems on the whole are resilient. If we keep this below 1.5, 1.8 degrees, we're going to lose a bit along the way, but we are going to adapt to it. And I think that's important to say because it's easy to feel really pessimistic about, about things. And okay, if we manage to do this responsibly, the world's a tough living system and it will adapt. But the society that they're going to live in is going to be so different to ours because I've grown up in a world in which I have to negotiate a sense of guilt about what I consume and the energy that I use and all of the decisions that I make. It's easy to begin framing everything as if your net impact on the planet can only be negative. Whereas when we have sustainable grids, when we have really effective circular circular economies, really good recycling systems. You know, we have hydrogen fueled transport everywhere. My kids won't need to feel bad about flying places. They won't need to feel bad about consuming things because 
so much innovation will have taken place. So my hope is that it's completely mainstream in 2050 for people to think about the end of life and what happens to it. And it's just not an option for it to go to waste because the planet is a fragile thing and we need to protect it. But, you know, at the same time, I'm really positive about what an achievement that will be because frankly, there aren't that many societies which have had really regenerative, positive impacts on their environment. There are plenty, but a lot of societies out there in human history have kind of ended up destroying one or other parts of the environment. And if we can shift to this place where we're all really collectively responsible for the environment that we take care of as stewards, I want to be part of that. I'm a bit like you. I'm positive about what's coming. We're hearing more and more stories now about different towns and cities going completely off stored energy, whether that's mechanically stored or solar, completely off any kind of carbon grid. And I think that's all good news and stuff to, to look forward to and be proud of. Is there a company, is there a industry, is there a business that you think is doing particularly badly in terms of being carbon neutral? Should we name and shame them? I'm not going to name and shame any specific brands because what I'm passionate about is, is the circular economy. The problem with recycling and circular economy based things is that to act responsibly, to recycle everything, you need this alignment between companies and individuals handling their future resource, now waste, in the right way. But you need the right technology, you need the right recycling centers, you need the right manufacturers after the recyclers to use that content, you need the right policies. So it's a lot more murky than something like oil companies, where it's super clear you're investing a fraction of what you invest in green technology than you do in oil. Like that is awful. With the circular economy, if someone's not recycling very much, it's really difficult to specify exactly whose responsibility it is. And that's part of the big problem. But I think one of the things that I would say is how much greenwashing there is right now. So there's no specific company that I'm going to name and shame, but a lot of the time you can do very well pricing your products three times more than normal and saying that you've incorporated a little bit of recycled content. For example, there might be some highly sought after marine plastics. You have to pay a lot of money for the very little amount of marine plastic that is easy to recycle, but you can source it. You can say, well, most is going to waste, but we'll find that 5% that's easy to recycle. We'll pay a lot of money for it. We'll put it in our product. And that's not to say you should be cynical because we need people to invest in products which, which are made from recycled materials, which are made from marine waste. There's are awesome companies doing it, but I'm always exhausted by companies which seem a little bit too green. They're not that transparent. And I think, well, there's still a lot of maybe virgin plastic, or maybe your net impact isn't very high because you make 10 products a year or something like that. So, you know, what, what can I say to those companies? It's good to be in the space, but you don't want to be part of something that leads people to become cynical or disillusioned by claims around recycled content. And that annoys me a bit. If you like what we're doing here, be sure to check out Twig, the people behind Big Earth Energy, who are doing some really cool stuff with their bank of things. So check out their app, which allows you to start your own climate action today. While making money, you'll be extending a life of items and ultimately actioning sustainable behaviors. You can find them at twigcard.com.
I grew up in Jamaica and I remember there being bottle buyback schemes and, you know, people instinctively save that bottle. Are you going to throw that bottle away? Why do we not have it here? It's madness that Everywhere that was I've alive. Seen it. In the in the 90s, I didn't help. <laughs> that was a, a scheme that we knew worked. And it still works. In the US it works. In South America it works. In parts of Africa it works. In the Caribbean it works. Why are we not doing it here? So the good news is with a very belabored nod to the government here. There's a lot of new stuff coming in in 2023 and 2024. There's meant to be deposit return schemes. Now, there was meant to be deposit return schemes five years ago. They've kept on delaying it. We are moving in the right direction. And what we see, which is really cool, is more and more private companies doing an internal return scheme where, for example, within a stadium, Maybe you pay a pound extra for your cup. That sucks. That's a tax, but you get that pound back once you give your cup back. Nice. Makes that's sense. really cool. And because the stadium's an enclosed space, they can do that. So everywhere should be doing it if you have that kind of situation, that kind of uh, condition. But it's madness because we've known that this works for so long. So Scotland's further ahead than England and Wales, but I think we're moving in the right direction. We need to see stuff like that a lot more. Ben, I give you a billion pounds. What does your sustainable action plan look like? This question terrifies me because wealth needs to be invested really well to make an impact in, in society. And to have a billion pounds, I don't even know where to start. So this is not a responsibility that I'd necessarily choose. But I'm thinking of things around the circular economy that we really need to see. And there is so much investment that is needed. I think one of the things that I've seen most clearly talking to recycling plants, recycling facilities, is that a lot of the time we have technology already out there which can increase recycling rates. Now, a little plug for our technology, we'll still need effective recycling systems for mixed plastics to get recycling rates above 60% or 70%. We'll always need the kind of technology that we're really interested in developing. But at the moment, recycling rates are sometimes 20%, 25%. And there are machines out there which literally do all of the work for you, but they're a bit expensive. And recycling companies are private companies that are really monitoring their bottom line. They can't necessarily make two or three million pound investments. And that is as simple a reason as, as it is for why they can't equip themselves with recycling technology. So where I would start off with is some kind of evergreen loan fund where you can get a loan for 1% interest or for 0% interest, really beneficial for businesses. It's subsidized by this kind of fund. And effectively, it allows businesses to take out money in far safer a way to make investments to increase their recycling facility. Now, that would cost not very much at all because the money wouldn't even be used for the machines their profit making, you can earn more money once you've invested in it. So it's a loan. But we're looking for ways to make investments more attractive and more feasible within the within the sector. So that's one thing which you know comes to mind when we're doing something like this. The other thing that I'd make more investments in is smaller amounts of money for people with earlier stage ideas or maybe established companies branching into a new space to try out potentially risky uh, research and development with grants 
so that they can get the validation that they need to determine whether we can actually use X or Y technology. So there's already stuff like this out there and we would not exist as a company without some of these grants. So we've got hundreds of thousands of pounds from Innovate UK, which is a government body. And we've got little pots of money here and there, which have absolutely defined and enabled us as a company. I have no idea how other entrepreneurs from, for example, emerging markets are able to do it when they have no access to grants because it is so fundamental for a startup. And even when you're a bit more established, we're slightly more mature now, but we still have all of these ideas where we say, oh, we're getting this material data. We think we can do something with this waste stream. There's a 20,000 pound hot sheet press, which we can equip with this kind of technology. And essentially we think we can make this product. This person wants to buy it, but we need a bit of money to justify making it. That kind of catalytic funding, it completely changes the commercial environment. So I think it's really important to invest, to invest in that. The last thing I want to say is I think entrepreneurship is amazing. It's transformed my life. It's given me so much because it's allowed me to bring this creativity to the world. And I've only been able to do it with the support of, you know, accelerators, which are kind of support systems for early stage founders, grants, as I've mentioned, and just very luckily having had the ideas implanted in my head from people that have gone before me. But I want to set up a company that really does good for the planet. You know, it's called social entrepreneurship. And it means that everything about your company is about profit, people, and planet rather than just profit. But when you're trying to get external investment, you have to often go to venture capitalists and they really just want profit. And it's so hard because I can give you a profitable business. I can give you a three or four times return on your investment. What I might not be able to do if I'm investing a lot in social programs, if I want to deliver products at an affordable price, I might not be able to do a 10 or 20 or a hundred times return. And that means if you need external investment, it's really hard to remain social at your heart because you have to make compromises. And I would love to be part of a society which really supports social entrepreneurs. So it says, if you're willing to commit your company to good and you don't want to sell it for you know millions and millions and millions of pounds down the line, what you want is a good salary and you want a company that does great stuff. We're going to help you with specialist support funds. And that would change the game for people that want to commit their companies to good. Have you seen that model work in anywhere else in the world? We're seeing the earliest stages of support ecosystems for social entrepreneurship. The earliest stages were, were 20 or 15 years ago. So I, there are people out there who might, might question me in saying that we're still at the early stages, but it's certainly not mainstream. And there are companies out there who are absolutely leading the way. And there, for example, any investor that comes in, they're not trying to sell their company as quickly as possible. They're trying to make sustainable profits that will eventually be used to buy back the shares so that the company can keep on doing good and isn't under pressure to sell to a private equity firm. There are companies out there which are just amazing. And the one that I always get the most inspired by is Patagonia. I love Patagonia. You know what I do. I, I think they're getting fed up with me. I bring my kit back for them to repair it for absolutely free, nothing. They are awesome and they give so much as well, don't they? 
I can't believe the generosity of the founding people and the senior management and the, the early investors to dedicate how powerful a company that is to foundations and to trusts. And I think that if they can do it, we can do it. And if we can do it, anyone can do it. I'd love to see more companies do that. You know, we need more accelerators for social entrepreneurship. We need more investment funds for social entrepreneurship. And actually, we need more support for the types of people that wouldn't normally go into business to say, you know what? I'm not really motivated by profit. That doesn't get me out of bed in the morning. I was thinking about the charity sector, but instead I'm going to use my drive to start a business, which is ethical and social in nature. If we get teenagers saying that, our society's on for a winner. Couldn't agree more. That was you as a private citizen. Now imagine you're prime minister. What does your sustainable living action plan look like? Oh, such a hard question. All right, I'm going to throw out some areas that we're going to invest in. So deposit return schemes everywhere. We're going to have really good collection systems. Plastic will always be collected separately and it's going to remain separate. Recycling centers are going to have proper separation equipment. And in addition to that, you know, we're going to have the proper taxes on the use of single-use materials. So if you've designed your product in a way that can't be recycled by a pre-identified company, then you're going to pay a very hefty tax to account for the cost on the environment. I think it's actually madness that we don't have that because I can stick together an impossible material, sell it for a lot of profit. And whose problem is it? Possibly the recycling company, certainly the planet. You know, better tax. And then the last thing is this notion called extended producer responsibility. Now, I promise it's not too technical if I explain it really briefly, but in essence, if you're able to make a big profit producing virgin plastic, it's someone else's problem down the line to recycle. But there's a lot more profit being a large-scale chemical industrial company than there is being a little recycler. So in essence, producer responsibility means that they need to pay a certain amount in order to subsidize recycling costs. And we've had the first stages of that for a little bit now, but in Germany, it works a lot better because basically producers have a lot more responsibility. The plastic lobbies or the chemical lobbies are less strong in Germany, so they have to subsidize a bit more. So I would make sure as a prime minister that we're seeing kind of the proper subsidies, responsibilities spread evenly across producers and recyclers. So I'm a genie in a bottle. I give you three wishes. Wish one. Quick fire. Go. Zap back into 1970. <laughs> yes. I don't know who I need to bang on the head to say, have you thought about where this is going before you put it into the market? Make sure that you can do something with it. Kickstart from the beginning. Exactly. Number two, there was a lot of stuff in the 80s. I'm really time traveling here. You might notice on recycling symbols, all of the acronyms that we mentioned earlier, they've got little triangles yes. around them. With like an arrow. With an arrow. Yeah. Which suggests that it's being recycled. That was the result of a very strong set of lobbies by the chemical companies in the 80s to make it look like it's being recycled. So it's not a recycling logo. It's just an identification logo to say, this is what the plastic is made out of. But there was this moment in the, in the 80s, I think, when people started to say, oh, we're making quite a lot of this stuff. What's happening to it? And 
it is not a nice story to follow. I'm in no way very much persuaded by most um, conspiracy-esque theories. This isn't really one, but you definitely had some nasty practice going on because people were starting to wake up to it. And they were persuaded that actually it's going to a recycling facility. We're not publicly mandated to report on recycling targets. Councils don't have to report on percentage figures. Governments don't have to report on recycling. And look, every piece of plastic has what looks like a recycling logo on it. That was a massive misnomer. And, and it's something that I really look back on and I think, damn, if we had caught that a bit earlier. Being in that room around that table when they said, oh, let's just put this symbol on it. Exactly. And saying, hold on, that's unfair. And number three. Number three is a cheeky one. Whilst I'm time traveling, but slightly further forward, I don't know exactly what I would have had to uh, have done to make Al Gore clinch those extra 20,000 votes when uh, this sounds like we're going into nefarious territory now. <laughs> I'll have to try and persuade people. I'll do it, I'll do it legitimately, but maybe joining in on, on Al Gore's team, I sometimes look back at that election and Al Gore was so ahead of his time. I grew up reading all of his books, you know, An Inconvenient Truth. That was over 20 years ago, I think. That was a long, long time ago that book was published. It totally changed the way that I look at the world. And I think it did for a lot of people. I think it did for a lot of young people. There was a documentary as well, wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was. So powerful. But I think 2017 was our watershed moment as a society. Uh, 2018, 2017, Blue Planet came out, you know, David Attenborough effect. Everyone started looking at all of this plastic in the oceans and you just started to see massive, massive action about plastic and end of life. And we're really benefiting from that and all of the work that's been done to get the public to such a state of awareness, because all of a sudden people are receptive and open to what we're trying to do as a company. But I sometimes think back and what on earth was happening from let's say 2000 to 2015, before 1990s, uh, maybe there wasn't enough published evidence for people to really change their business practices, but we sure as hell had enough evidence at that point. And so one thing which I, I really would love to have changed is more political leadership during this kind of decade and a half where people knew about what was at stake, people knew what the problems were, and they had good ideas about how to fix it. What we didn't have was much political will. And we know when political leader takes a stance on something and they make a decision, people will follow. Look at COVID, stay home. We all stayed home. So had they said recycle everything or use less rather than it being guidance, I think people have done it. So on a scale of one to 10, where does your carbon guilt sit on how you commute daily? I'm going to give myself a two or a three. Yeah. But that's not because I'm perfect. I do mostly use a train. I sadly had to sell my motorbike, so I don't even use any gas guzzling You're motor so transport cool. now. You ride a motorbike? Not well. anymore. No, I sold it as of, as of Jan, I know. So it's just the train for me. But I am as guilty as the rest of us, or as many of us who take planes every so often. I think the reason why I put it at a two or a three is, you know, guilt's a hard one to make constructive we sometimes need to feel guilt before taking responsibility fully. I think if you have absolutely no remorse, you're never going to absolutely take responsibility. But what I don't like is this 
kind of puritanical spirit of a lot of new environmentalists who who might suggest that we should feel rubbish about all of the decisions that we take because everything's going to have an impact. And I think sometimes I want to live a life that I'm joyous in living. And that might mean making some decisions which have a carbon impact. So I'm a vegetarian for climate reasons, but sometimes I'll travel, sometimes for work, sometimes for leisure. And where it's necessary, I might take a flight. And that sucks, but I'm doing the best that I can in all other areas of my life. And that includes being politically active. And obviously for me, that includes my whole work to be conscious about my, my carbon impact. Going back to you being prime minister now, we're having a party. There's two people outside. You've got one spot left. The two people stood outside the door. It's Donald Trump knocking to get in and Greta Thunberg ringing the bell. Which one are you letting in? I'm letting in Greta. Yeah, just as simple as that. As simple as that. Donald Trump, I think you're mad if you think you can influence him. He's going to crash your party. Life's about having a good time. And I don't think that man knows how to have a good time in a wholesome way. Do you have any books or podcasts or websites you'd recommend for any of our listeners? Yeah, I've got a couple. The first one I say with a bit of trepidation, but it's called The Plastic Paradox. And it's by a material scientist who really influenced the way that I view sustainable materials. He's the person that's most shaped my views on LCAs when we talked about life cycle analyses. And he's really making the case that sometimes we need to use plastic more sensibly. And it's not just about blanket bands, for example. He is pretty outraged in that book about many people that say bad things about plastic. I actually have a slightly different view than him. So I'd say it's really great reading, but it's not necessarily always my view because I've seen how bad plastic pollution is. And I think I'm slightly less of a fan of the material as a whole than he is, but it's a really great read. The other book that comes to mind is something called Out Innovate. And it's subtitled as something like how global entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are reshaping investment or Silicon Valley or something like that. And it's a really great read about what sustainable, inclusive entrepreneurship might look like when we allow and enable entrepreneurs from all over the world, when we have more interesting investment structures. For me as an entrepreneur, it's really inspiring to think I want to choose my company. I want to really be mindful about who I aspire to be and who our peers are. And I want to choose people that are doing the best kind of entrepreneurship and not just flogging their company off for a billion and having no sense of consciousness about what the wider impact of their company is on the world. Benjamin, awesome. Listen, if our listeners want to hear more or find out more about your business, Circular 11, where can they go and do that? We've got a great Insta page. I'm going to plug that. My co-founder, Connor Winter, is absolutely all over posting and you'll, you'll be more up to date with uh, the company than I will be sometimes. You know, and obviously we're on LinkedIn, our website, circular11.com. We'd love to have people along for the journey because it's, uh, it's been an interesting couple of years. It's going to be an exciting few ahead. So if you have the time to follow our work, yeah, we'd be really happy to have you along. Great. Thank you, Ben. That was Big Earth Energy. Thank you to you, dear listener. We'll be back with another episode soon. Mm-hmm.